Hey, I'm Russ Bailey, and you are listening to Screenplaying, the podcast where I interview working screenwriters and ask them how they broke into Hollywood. Today, I'm sitting here with Matthew Sand. Matthew, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm so excited that we're going to do this. Me too. Um, just a little introduction um, for those that uh, that are listening. What are some movies or TV shows that you've worked on? Uh, that I've worked on. Gosh. Um... 10,000 BC, uh, Deepwater Horizon, Ninja Assassin. Um, I've worked on some Marvel properties. I mean, I, I, in the 18 years I've been in this business, um, my God, I'm old. In the 18 years I've been in this business, I've worked for every major studio. I've worked primarily in film, um, every genre pretty much, but comedy and romantic comedy. Um, I'm heartless and have no sense of humor. Uh, I... Have written for TV, never staffed on a TV show, never had a TV program shot, uh, but I've worked with um, a whole bunch of different TV production companies, um, and I'm for different networks as well. I love it. And then I'm, my understanding is that you're working on a TV show right now, right? I'm working on at least two TV shows right now. Uh, I have, I mean, the, what am I working on right now? I guess is your larger question. Yeah. Uh, I'm working on. A project for Legendary, the company that made uh, Dune. Uh, we're rebooting Active Valor, um, starting sort of from the ground up. Uh, what does Valor mean to various armed forces, specifically the Marine Corps for the first iteration? Uh, I am working on a TV show uh, co-created with Brad Falchuk uh, for Netflix uh, that is a male-driven soap opera set in the world of private military contractors. I am working on, gosh, I have a vampire thing. I'm looking at my board right now. I have a vampire thing. I have, um, I'm doing dailies. Um, I guess they want dailies mean um, for a face-driven football film with Wayfarer Studios. Uh, but that'll be done in a few more weeks. Uh, and I have another TV project with Christopher Columbus. That's incredible. So it's a lot. It's a lot. It, it's a little bit more than I usually have. There's some I'm leaving out. Like one of my first questions is, how do you manage all of those different projects at the same time? Uh, neurotically, I think is the answer. Um, I have always been more comfortable working on more than one thing at a time. Uh, if I'm writing just one thing, I think, my God, if this doesn't work, I'll have to sell my daughter on eBay, uh, and that doesn't help anybody, including my daughter. Uh, if I'm doing two or three. I can say, okay, this isn't working today. Let's work on this. And even the act of working on something else generally puts me in a better mind frame so I can go back to that thing that's more urgent. Um, something I have learned and advice I've given over the years is that instead of trying to think of the enormity of what you haven't written yet and how much there is of it, just do 10 hours a day. Do your 10 hours, five days, six days, whatever, whatever, Whatever your maximum comfortable gear is, and I, I, I know I have a, a slightly higher rev rate than most people, um, just do that. And magically, somehow, all the important stuff will get done. Promise. Promise. What does your daily writing routine look like? God, it varies so much from day to day. Uh, some days I have a podcast. Um, <laughs> it varies a lot from day to day. Uh, if I am on draft, I try to do four one-hour chunks of writing per day. Uh, each chunk will be one hour that gets me two pages of script. 
Uh, and by the end of that four hours total, which is one hour on, one hour off, one hour on, one hour off, uh, I will have gotten eight pages. That's the theory. Uh, in practice, particularly now, I'm much more likely to be interrupted by a Zoom or a conference call um, or a practice pitch or a consult with a producer or a director or an actor, something that requires my immediate attention. Uh, I'm a little bit more in catch-as-catch-can with time than is normally the case. Uh, but, yeah, I can't do one thing at a time. And I, I'm, I'm definitely happy you're juggling. I love that. That's It's interesting for me to talk to different writers because there's some writers that can only do one at a time and they, they focus on one until it's done. Um, so to hear that you can juggle multiple projects at a time and that benefits you, I love to hear. You know, my advice to writers is always with a caveat. When you ask me what my ideal writing day is or what my practice is or my method is, it's always put the qualifier of this is what works for me. Writing, particularly feature film writing, is enormously idiosyncratic uh, personal process. And you got to find out what works for you and fucking double down on it. Can I curse in this podcast? Absolutely. Yeah. You got to fucking double down on it. I had a friend who did her best writing uh, when she got up in the middle of the night to pee. And she discovered, you know what? I need to keep my laptop by my bed. And now she works every night from like three to four in the morning. I discovered years ago that when I go to meet someone for dinner, uh, if I sit at the bar, I often get good editing done. If I bring a piece of paper and a pen, I get good work done. I have a cocktail. There's no pressure. No one judging me. Uh, now I get to every dinner two hours early, minimum an hour early, because that becomes a free period of time when I can actually just carve out this moment to think fluidly. Uh, and it really helps. I've done that for years. I love hearing those things. So again, like you said, like everyone has a different thing. For me, I get a lot of writing done when I go on a walk. So I go yeah. on an hour-long walk with my voice recorder and just new ideas will come out if I just talk it out for an hour. Yep. And then I get back. And I, 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 yes. Yep. And and I love that. So like that's something that you know took me a while to find. You know, and you feel like, oh, you're not writing. But it's like, no, I'm absolutely writing when I'm going on a walk. It's absolutely right. The most frustrating days for me in terms of, of a sense of self-worth are breaking story, where you can spend an entire day banging against your, your head against the proverbial wall. And all you have at the end of it is maybe his mom is the alien. Um, it just doesn't feel like you've accomplished much. Uh, but that's that's as important as anything else I do. I find there are wildly different muscles being engaged from breaking the story, selling a story, writing the first draft, writing the second draft, and writing the 11th draft. Uh, and I also firmly believe I get paid the big bucks for the 11th draft. That, that, that The draft where I cannot fucking stand the script anymore when I'm lying on the floor and typing with my hands over my head, that's the one they're paying me for. The first one's for you. The 11th one, that's the one you're getting paid for. It's, you got to stick with it. I mean, it, 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 again, it depends on the process. Um, in, in television, we'll talk about this more, but in television, it's much more of a regimented, formalized process. Uh, features, they're much more catch as catch can. Matthew, what is your origin story as a screenwriter? How did My you get origin story? I left out of a speeding train and landed on a book. No. Um, <laughs> I was an art dealer for years and years. I went to graduate school. I worked at a gallery in Soho. I uh, worked as a corporate art consultant for uh, companies like Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch. Uh, I don't know what other people do when they're waiting for the train. I always told myself stories. Um, long, connected narratives. Um, I also played Dungeons and Dragons a lot when I was a kid. I was almost yes. always a dungeon master. 
that is a great education for any writer. Uh, you want to have your friends give a shit. Uh, that's what writers do for a living is get people to give a shit, get them to engage, get them to care. Um, I left the art world for a variety of reasons. Um, and I remember I was in the Strand in New York and I picked up a book called How to Write a Screenplay. Uh, and it well, was an overnight success after only seven years. I sold my first script. Um, it takes a while, folks. Uh, fair warning. Breaking in as a writer takes a minute. Uh, industry standards seems to be about six or seven years. Uh, why that is, I don't know. Uh, there's something about sticking it out that teaches you to have a voice you can rely on. And if you haven't got a voice you can rely on the absence of notes, when you start getting 45 people poking at you with phone calls and emails and texts, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose the thread. Uh, I moved here to Los Angeles. I, you know, this is 24 years ago now. I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, I had a whole bunch of meetings through friends and friends of friends. Uh, my uncle was a producer. All of that helped. But really, I was working in a law firm downtown, and I remember writing on a piece of paper, uh, a guy talking to a psychiatrist about summoning a demon. Turns out the, de- the psychiatrist is the demon. And that was it. That was my best high concept idea. Still, my best high concept idea, which is sad. Um, but I wrote that. It was a script called The Summoner. I gave that to um, a guy I met through a guy I met at a party uh, who ended up being my first manager. Uh, he sent that script out to, I think, about 100 different production companies because there were that many in those days. I had a dozen meetings um, right off the bat. And one of those led to uh, a guy named Ed McDonald, uh, who's now a TV producer. And he said, you know, I think Beowulf could be a movie. I said, Beowulf is definitely a movie. It's a horror movie. Here's why. And I sold it as a pitch to Warner Brothers. Uh, I caution all of you listening to now, you cannot sell a pitch to Warner Brothers anymore as an unsold writer. It ain't going to happen. I don't care if you're the young Shakespeare. It ain't going to happen. Uh, you got to write things nowadays. But I sold that pitch to Warner Brothers, uh, and that launched my career. Um, I delivered a good draft, got two more scripts um, for Warner Brothers, got hired by Sony on a Roland Emmerich movie, um, got hired by Fox and something else. Um, and just, yeah, it, it's been blessedly touch wood pretty steady since then. That's incredible. So it sounds like it's one, being prepared as a writer, and then two, meeting the right people that were able to connect you to more of the right people. The connections help a lot. I think there are a lot of ways of making connections. One thing I will tell you is if you write something that is genuinely good, uh, people will read it and will get passed around. There are not that many good properties out there. Um, the other big advice I have for, for the younger folks listening to this program is the idea, the fundamental idea is more important than the execution. I've met a lot of young writers who are, and older writers for that matter, who are in such a rush to break in and need the money so badly that they rush off with an idea that's half-baked and type as fast as they can. And they do four or five more drafts and it ends up being a very competent, uh, well written, unsaleable property. Um, as opposed to something which has a great idea at the core of it, even if the execution is shitty, I can help you fix the execution. Um, I can't help you fix the idea. So overall, would you suggest that writers spend more time really just developing the story itself first, more outline? Even before the story, what is the fundamental one-sentence idea, even two sentences? Like, what is what is your story about? Um, don't try too much to 
chase what's hot right now. Um, if you read in the trades that they just sold a big property about so-and-so and so-and-so, don't try to do what's next in that because someone like me has already been in that room a year ago. Um, do what you care about. Your job is to make the reader cry, laugh, get a heart on, just emotionally engage. And if you can have that happen early and often, people will care. People will read. People will sell. Did you, um, I know you got your graduate degree in, in art. Did you also study screenwriting or did you teach yourself? I have taken a one and only seminar class in writing in my entire creative writing my entire life. And I say that with no pride whatsoever. Uh, I wish I'd taken more creative writing classes. I wish I'd taken acting classes. Uh, I wish I'd um, been behind the camera more than I have been. I feel the absence of all this on a daily basis. I have tried to educate myself by talking to actors, reading books about actors, but it ain't the same as being in front of a camera. And I feel like it's kind of too late to have that experience. Um, but I, I would encourage everyone out there to take writing classes, but also to have a life. Go do stuff because it's the stuff you do that will inform what you're able to write. I love that. Is there, besides living an awesome life, is there anything else that you would recommend to writers to really exercise that muscle of storytelling? Write a lot. Right. Um, I, I don't know any writer who has broken in or had a career without doing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. Uh, it's a skill as much as it is an art. Uh, you must develop your craft. You, there's, there's no other way. Uh, read a ton of scripts. Uh, watch movies with the sound off. Uh, read scripts for movies you haven't seen, then watch the movie. Uh, this is fairly easy with foreign films for most of us. Um, pick a writer and track what he or she has done so you can get a sense of what a voice is like because you hardly ever watch multiple movies by the same writer with that intent unless you're watching Harry Potter. Um, give that a shot. You know, Watch a bunch of Kelly Corey movies. Watch a bunch of John Logan movies. Um, they have a voice. Uh, read a bunch of scripts by the same writer because that will help you to find your voice. Um, but just to, to reiterate, the idea is important. If you're going to spend a month writing a first draft, you should spend a month thinking of the idea. That's great. I love hearing that. Um, the idea of, of a voice, I'm somebody like a lot of people ask me that they're like, Russell, how do I find my voice? And my take has been, if you write something into your voice, like it can't not be your voice. What do you mean though? by voice, tell me, tell me. Well, respectfully, I, first of all, I respectfully disagree. I don't think that anything yeah. you write with your voice. I think that for the most part, uh, with people who aren't in Aaron Sorkin, um, or, you know, any, any of, of the other stupendous rock stars in this business, you got to find your voice, which means you have to write stuff that sounds like yourself. We are, for the most part, imitating other people at the beginning. Uh, you read something or you watch something or you hear something and you start, you say, oh my God, that's amazing. I love how she sounds. And you write that way. That's not your voice. That's imitation. I mean, I, I Hemingway is one of my absolute favorite prose stylists. Um, I tried to write like him. You can't. You can't write like Hemingway. You can imitate Hemingway. Uh, but finding how how I am best served by the words I put on paper, that's my voice. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of tricky business involved in that. 
Um, I care a lot about the words in the page. Um, and then there are things I do with that, uh, dropping out words, using, using tormentos, uh, underlining, bolding, skipping lines, all these things that are in the screenwriter's bag of tricks, which is far more voluminous than what a novelist has to work with. Um, you can just do things a novelist can't do. Uh, we don't get to do a shitload of stuff internally that a novelist can do. Uh, it's a much more naked process. But with the actual appearance of the words in the page, you can play more games, learn to use those. Uh, whether it's lots and lots of tricks and, and, and traps or none of the above, but your voice will be the thing that finally sounds like you and only like you. Well, that, doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean like, Oh, Shane Black, uh, biggest writer of the 80s and 90s, was famous for inserting jokes and making fun of people. Uh, he'd say stuff like, uh, Grace, you remember Grace, don't you? You assume that you're a fat ass, you dumb studio executive, you forgot Grace, she was on page 17. Go ahead, flip back, I'll wait. He would do that. Uh, great work for him. I don't do that. Uh, I do other stuff. Uh, I will insert the occasional character description um, that... I uh, just describe a character as, as uh, Eileen is strong. Any woman married to Roger would have to be strong. But there's also a kindness to her. Uh, that's not necessarily showing up on screen, but it so informs how you read her dialogue in the next scene. Um, I think it's worth doing. That's fun. So if I'm hearing you correctly, finding your own voice is more about stripping uh, away, uh, copying others. Stripping away. While acknowledging you are common, it's, it's, it's like language. You know, language is the imitation of the sounds and the meanings you've heard. But the way you speak is inimitably yours um, because you have come to understand how you best get your point across. I love that. A couple of other questions uh, that, that I'd just love to hear from. Um, in your career, have you mostly been working with original material? Have you mostly worked on assignment? Uh, Or has it been both? It's been both. Um, I was blessedly... It's been both. I I have worked on anything from rewriting existing screenplays. Uh, I do a lot of that to adapting books. Um, I enjoy doing real-life stuff. Deepwater Horizon was so deeply satisfying um, on so many levels. Uh, I like doing interviews. I like first-hand research. I like research in general a lot. Uh, I do like real-life stories. But I've also worked in comic books. I've adapted foreign movies. Um, you name it. And I've also come up with my own ideas. Uh, for the most part, um, I have only sold two specs in my entire career. Two? Three in my entire career. Um, it's just not how I've worked. Um, I've sold a whole lot of pitches. Uh, I am really good at pitching. Uh, which is like being really good at driving a shift car. Um, it's just not a skill set that is as valuable as it once was. Um, it is still an important skill to develop. Every one of us must pitch, uh, but to sell a pitch, um, it just doesn't happen as much anymore. Like I can do it with great difficulty and with a giant movie star and a giant director attached uh, to writers who haven't got a track record. It's prohibitively difficult. And the reason is they will be paying you for what you have not written yet. There's a lot of trust in there. Um, and even with, with that trust, and I have a, a lot of trust now with a lot of people, I have learned at some cost that when I leave the room after telling you the 15-minute version of the movie, what I had in my mind is not the same as what anyone else in that table got away from that meeting. 
you know, I, I will the 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 thinnest pitch I ever sold. Uh, the man who robbed Al Qaeda uh, was a bank robber is recruited by the FBI and then seconded to the CIA to steal back money that belonged to Al Qaeda stashed in banks all across the Middle East. True story. That, that actually happened. And we can talk about that at length if you want to. Uh, I sold pretty much that exact pitch. That was the whole thing. Uh, I said, yeah, we can go, we can go fast and furious, or we can do Butch and Sundance. Uh, I can see arguments in favor of both when you haven't bought. Uh, and I sold it like that. It was a five-minute conversation. And they sold it, they bought it for a ton of money. It was Netflix. And I remember my manager who was in the room with me, um, my then manager, saying, How the fuck did you do that? How did you sell it? I'm like, well, because I've known Sarah Bowen, the Netflix executive, for 12 years. Uh, and also, it's a really strong idea. Like it's, it's, it's right right away, you're like, yes. But the simplicity with which I sold a fragment of an idea massively bit me in the ass later, which is what I went to outline. Uh, the producer, Lorenzo de Bonaventura, had one movie in mind. Netflix had another movie in mind. Then I had a third movie in mind. And hell, my manager had a fourth movie in mind. And none of them overlapped very much. Uh, so I, I, have, I have become a lot more rigid about requiring no matter who gives a crap uh, that we do a full 10 minute pitch every single time. At least that buys me some sinecure of we all know roughly what we're in for. Uh, trust is so much part of the pitching process though, so much. For a story like that, did you have to option a book? Did you, was it all just based on uh, news articles? Like how did you, what, like, because it's based on something that really happened, where did the IP come from? It, it varies so much. In that case, there was another competing project that had optioned an article in some online publication, I forget which, uh, which was a little bit shady, frankly, because the online article was essentially telling a story that had been told to him by a guy who trained this bank robber. So we went and found the guy who trained the bank robber, and he told me the story. Um but his story began with the arrival of Bill Bankrupper in his training camp, and then it ended with him leaving for the Middle East. I was like, all right, so that's not even act one. So I had to invent everything else. Now, look, I, I have adapted books where it was almost page for page. Uh, I have adapted other things like Manhattan Black Haida, or like the thing I did for um, Act of Valor. Um, the studio said, we want to start over again. So it's got to be about Valor, and it's got to be about the Marines. That's it. And see a budget of around 40 to 70. That was it. Um, so that, that was the entire IP that I had to work with was the title in the Marine Corps in Valor. Wow. Um, and that ended up being oddly one of my best scripts ever. Just uh, it, it cracked that way. Other things, uh, Water Margin, uh, this big Chinese property. Uh, it's been around for 900 and almost 1,000 years now. Uh, a fabulous book, which is the, the almost, it's like the Chinese Robin Hood meets King Arthur. It's, it's endless narratives that are spun together into this grand world building amazingness. And we sold it to Netflix with a really amazing Japanese director attached. That was a nightmare to adapt, a nightmare, uh, because there was so much and it didn't necessarily work as a movie. And I frankly, I don't think we ever really cracked the first act, but that's neither here nor there. As a writer for some of these properties, do you personally go and option it first or do you pitch it and then have a network go and option something? I'd always rather spend the multinational billion dollar company's money rather than my own. Um, I have optioned stuff from time to time, but look, it's, it's not, 
I, I don't want to do it that way. Okay, I, I don't want to be out. It's usually about ten thousand dollars for an option. Um, sometimes it can be less. You know, if there's something that that was Samuel R. Delaney wrote a story years ago that I tried to option. We wanted a nominal fee because no one was interested in opting anymore. He wrote it 40 years ago. He was a nice guy. Um, but I, I, I would much rather pitch something and have a big company buy it for a lot of money than try and carve out my own vaguely, dramatically more complicated deal. Well, I'll give you a little bit now and a lot more later if it gets set up, but if the studio has to approve, there'll maybe a floor and a ceiling. It's so much easier for me to take the property with a shopping agreement, which means I have six months to go try to sell it, and we'll take that to studios. So you would get a shopping agreement, though, first. It depends on, on, on the, you know, it depends on what it is. I come in with enough prominence that I can usually get people to say, "Yeah, it's yours for a month, or at least these territories." If it's really competitive, it probably has already gone to Ridley Scott, and I'm not going to get it anyway. It's, uh, seriously, there, there was just a property that I wanted. And I, I, was like, I want it. Like, yeah, it's great. And then, yeah, uh, JJ wants it. I learned. Then JJ should get it. For the unsold writer, would you recommend that they focus on original content in specs? Or do you think that it's a valid path as well for an unsold writer to be finding shopping agreements on their own of IP that they like? I think whatever truly inspires you is what's important. Whether you have a magazine article or a book that was written in the 1950s or whatever it is, if it really gets you going and it's a really good idea, write that. I would caution you against optioning that thing you fell in love with when you were nine. Um, I have never seen that work. Uh, I have never seen the thing I loved when I was a kid, turning that into a movie finally. And I'm talking some big shops. I mean, big actors, big directors have tried to do that. I have never seen it work. Because the things you loved when you were nine probably aren't the things that adults will love now. Lovely. I would love to talk a little bit about Deepwater Horizon. What was that process like? Like in this same like conversation, how did you get a hold of that story, and how did you get that film made? Uh, that was fraught. Uh, getting every movie made is a war. Um, <laughs> Deepwater Horizon was several wars back to back. So my agent called me up. Um, and said, "Hey, there's an article coming out in the New York Times about the last, uh, the last, it was the last hours of the Deepwater Horizon. Um, take a look." So it was a New York Times article that was appearing, as he sent it to me. I read it and I was like, "You know what? I'm not sure this is a movie. Like, I, I, I know the territory. My father worked at a big uh, patrol petrochemical company. Like, I know the territory. And these are horrible tragedies, normally with a litany of mistakes and very few heroes. But I read it." And there was a section about halfway through, which described Mike Williams getting off the rig, getting into a lifeboat, realizing it was half empty, uh, and going back into the burning rig to save his friends. And I was like, oh, that's, that's a movie star moment. That's Mark Wahlberg. That's Matt Damon. That's Ben Affleck. That's what I make movies about. It's that kind of moment of, of untrammeled heroism. Um, so I said yes. Uh, there were a lot of Deep Water Horizon projects that were out there. A lot of competition. We had the article, but I mean, look, there there, there were roughly ten thousand articles about the Deepwater Horizon at that moment. Um, it helped a little bit that it was the New York Times and it was a big article, but um, even the Mike Williams story was in a couple of locations. So I developed a pitch. Um, I built up an entire fifteen-minute song and dance routine about the last fifteen minutes of the Deepwater Horizon, focusing on. Mike Williams and where he was and what he did and how he got his people out. Uh, it really was 
under 24 hours of the Deepwater Horizon's uh, final day. Um, I then pitched it to one, two, three, four, five different producers, um, all of whom I had, I'd had some relationship with previously, with one exception. Um, all of them loved the pitch. We took it to each one of their home studios. Uh, in some cases, that meant more than one studio. Lorenzo had two deals. Um, Mark Gordon had two deals. So we pitched it to seven studios and came really close to selling it seven times. I mean, really close in Warner Brothers, really close at Paramount. Uh, and then finally, at the 11th hour, all of them backed out. Um, so that was, it was a week of being Willie Loman and then Fawn song and dance. It was an amazing pitch. Like I said, I'm good at pitching. It's one of my best pitches ever. And didn't quite happen. I mean, it got, got tied up with lawyers and fear of exposure. Um, and I was lying face down in my gym, literally face down in a puddle of drool, exhausted, brutalized, miserable, a fucking failure in every way. And my agent called me up and said, hey, um, participant wants to hear it. Your buddy, Jonathan King. And I muttered something along the lines of Jonathan King can't afford it. This is dumb. And my agent, Emil Gladstone, to his lasting credit, said, fucking get up and pitch it. And I did. I dragged myself off the floor. I drove out to Jonathan King's office. And halfway through the pitch, Jonathan King said, yes, we'll do it. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, we'll, I, we'll, we'll finance at least half of it here. Uh, go pitch it to Summit, um, and, and they'll, they'll release it. So I pitched it to Summit the next day, and they were like, yeah, we're good. Let's do this. And that was it. Off to the races. And then it got even more complicated. Um, I wrote a script that everyone was happy with, um, even thrilled by. It got a lot of heat, a lot of attention. Got Mark Wahlberg attached to Star. Um, then got my always my first choice was Pete Berg attached to Direct. Uh, and then it got very interesting. Um, Pete wanted to go a certain direction. Uh, the studio and the producers did not. Pete dropped out. Then we went through, I want to say, six different directors. Um, which, for those of you who haven't been here for studio films, is unprecedented to go through that many directors. I mean, one of them committed suicide. One of them dropped out because of drug issues. I mean, it's, it, it was just bonkers. Um, and finally, we got J.C. Chandor, uh, who was hot off one of my favorite movies, um, uh, Margin Call. I mean, a stupendously talented director. And J.C. came in, um, and he did a whole bunch of work. And they were building sets, I mean, literally building sets in one month out from uh, principal. And he had gone a very different direction creatively. He made much more of an ensemble film, uh, more of a piece about man's relationship to the environment. Uh, and the studio said, that's not what we want to do. That's not what we're interested in making. Uh, so JC walked away. Uh, and we were left with half-built sets and Mark Wahlberg's shrinking schedule and no director. Uh, we went back to Pete Berg. And this is Lorenzo doing an amazing job as a producer and Mark Ferradian as well. And those two guys gave it back to Pete and Pete was like, yeah, I see the movie. I'll make it. In. Done. And we went from being a week and a half behind to one week ahead of schedule in like four days. Um, here's a story for you. So we built a seven, eight, or nine, ten scale deep water drilling platform out in a, a, an abandoned Six Flags parking lot outside of New Orleans. Um, and not out of like foam core movie magic, but out of cold rolled Corten steel. I mean, you can land helicopters on this. Uh, huge. It's a massive five story edifice. And we walked Pete Byrne through it. You know, look, isn't this amazing? And it was, it was $9 million. It should be amazing. It's incredible. This is. And Pete took one look at it and said, I'm not fucking shooting here. I'm going to bring cameras up and down all this shit with oil and crap. No, 
we're going to cut it up in pieces. We're going to shoot one third here, one third there, one third there. And you can use movie magic and squish them together. Tear this thing down, sell it for scrap metal. And we were like, no, don't, don't tear it down. Like, hold on, hold, hold on. We'll, 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 we'll do some exterior shots. We used it for a couple exterior shots. You can see it. It looks gorgeous. Um, but that was an example of different directors needing different things. JC couldn't do the movie unless he was standing on a rig. And Pete, to his lasting credit, was like, nah, I don't need to stand in a rig. I'm making a movie. I know how to look. So $9 million for a couple of extra. $9 million out of a, I think we ended up at a $137 million budget, a little more than that. So it was it was a hit, but it wasn't prohibitive. Much more prohibitive would have been losing Mark Wahlberg, uh, who was astonishingly good in that movie. Um, we put together a cast that was classic Lorenzo and Varadian. A, a really, a, just a humbling, wonderful cast. Uh, Matthew Carnahan came in after me, one of uh, one of Peeper's writers. Uh, Matt did a good draft. Um, I like my draft more, but I'm biased. Uh, they shot it, uh, and it was it was incredible. It ended up being a really fun and pleasant shoot. Like everyone was great, and Pete was amazing. Uh, it went through some drama in the editing process, but I don't think anyone was. Once Pete came on, and once we had a, a, a start date, I think everyone was pretty happy with it. Ultimately, as the writer, did you get to spend time on set at all, or was it kind of you separate? are you are so so just again for 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 those my, for my listeners today, um, you are by WGA rule by the the Writers Guild of America rule, you are allowed to visit the set of your own movie. Uh, they have to let you come visit. They have to pay plane fare. They have to be nice when you're there. Uh, in this case. Um, they were now that, that the be nice part is, is meaningful. Movie sets are a family, and you are walking into someone else's family saying, Hi, I gave birth to you. Uh, they can be very unhappy to see you unless unless someone makes a, a conscious effort. Um, I visited, I lived at Lorenzo's house while I was in New Orleans. Uh, that was fun. Um, you've never had a more fun dinner than dinner with Lorenzo de Bonaventura. Uh, and Pete Berg was fucking lovely to me on set. Uh, my first day there, we were having a safety conference, and Pete interrupted all of it to say, hey, everyone, this is Matthew Sand. He wrote the movie. Be nice to him while he's here. So. And it was great. I mean, I, I talked to everyone twice, um, and I happened to know a bunch of people already for a variety of reasons who were on that set, and it was just, it was such a pleasure, and everyone took it so seriously. We were very aware with Deepwater Horizon that these were, this story was about someone's brother or father or husband. Uh, who had died on that rig. We were visited by widows. We were visited by orphans. Uh, we were very much aware of the the gravity of what we were entertaining um, and just how much we owed those people who'd suffered that tragedy. But we really did our best to do right by them. I like to think we did, but um, it certainly was not for lack of effort on our part if we didn't. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. Thank you. Out of curiosity, did you have to get life rights as well for the film, or was the article enough? You do, yeah, you had to get life rights. We did. And Mark Wahlberg actually was very helpful with that. It's fantastic. Life rights can be complicated, uh, and they can be more complicated the bigger the movie is. So, again, that's something that you let the studio do, that as the writer, you don't have to touch. Well, yes and no. Um, I think life rights... It depends how much competition there is. You know, if you're a young writer and you're trying to sell your first thing, you better have the rights locked up to the life rights because you just don't know if you go and sell it to Warner Brothers and they're like, you know what? We think life rights are amazing. We didn't love the script when the kid signed to sell it. Let's not go with him or her. 
Or you get it sold and the, the person whose story it is like, you know what, I don't want to make a movie out of my life. No thanks. Uh, so if you're making a life right story, yes, you definitely should go talk to the person whose life it is and get them on board. Um, they may want to do it for free. They may ask you for a million dollars, in which case, find another story. Uh, but I think you have a moral compunction to go talk to a person if you're trying to tell their story. Yeah. Out of curiosity, working on a project like this where there's multiple writers, and I'm sure that's happened for you multiple times, what's that Pretty much, every time, yeah. Pretty much every time. It, 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 is, it is becoming more and more standard, actually, particularly the bigger films. Uh, you'll get a, a whole lot of writers involved. You won't see that on the screen uh, because of WGA rules. Um, they are very restrictive, for better or for worse. I personally think for worse about um, the credits accrued by writers in the writing process of a movie. Uh, you're basically only seeing the writer who has contributed 33% or more of the film. Uh, so if there are seven writers, you can do that much math easily. You're only going to have two, maybe three writers get a credit. I have done months and months of work on dozens of projects that became movies uh, and haven't got my name on them. And that's, I, I get annoyed about that, to be honest. It's insane that someone can work on craft services for a week in Iceland. And when I was in with the producer and the director and the star for a month, hammering out the second act beats, my name isn't on the film. All right. Okay. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. We are theoretically changing that with additional material by or additional material written by is a new credit that WGA passed. Uh, there was a lot of resistance to it. We will see what impact it actually has. I'm not talking about sharing the written by credit. I'm just talking about putting the names of people on the movie who work in the movie. Yeah. I mean, 100%. Looking back, if you could give advice to Matthew Sand, who's just arrived in Hollywood, what advice would you give him? Uh, get a haircut. Um, other than that, uh, stick with it. Um, it will work out. It will not work out the way you imagined it would, uh, but it will work out. Uh, obviously, that's specific to me advice. Uh, slow down a little bit. Um, that advice I gave about giving the idea stage, the process, its proper due, uh, that really is a lesson I learned over time. Um, quality of writing trumps everything else. Um, as you're making your way up the ranks as a writer, um, that's particularly the case. Uh, you can only do each, each project you work on is a vessel and it's of varying sizes. If you're working on a giant Chris Nolan movie, you can put all you've got heart and soul in there. If you're working on a Sylvester Stallone action film for, uh, for a $15 million budget. Um, and this is not a knock against Stallone, not against, against a horror movie, other, other different genres, but you can only put so much of yourself in there. You, know, you, you, can, you can only show so much of your talent. If your talent runs in those directions, awesome. Keep doing those if that's what you do best. Uh, if you are really good at historical fiction, you probably should write something that allows you to flex that muscle rather than just trying to do uh, Extraction 3. And I love Extraction. I mean, that's, that's, my, that's, my, that's that my, my business partner is, is Sam, Sam Hargrave. Um, it's just that, that you've got to allow for what the individual vessels can support. You put as much as you possibly can in that vessel so it's filled to overflowing, like the Wachowskis did with science fiction. Uh, you won't find a smarter movie ever. Uh, but 
yeah, the genre only supports so much. So choose your choose your projects carefully and make sure you're putting every bit of your talent and skill into the resulting pages because that's what you're going to be judged on. I love that. If uh, along those same lines, and again, I, today, if, if you landed in Hollywood today, would you pursue TV? Would you pursue, pursue film? Would you pursue new media? Uh, what do you think uh, would benefit you the most right now? Uh, well, I wouldn't pursue new media. New media is a little bit of clusterfuck. Um, I mean, it, it is, it is, it's the wild, it's generally the wild west out there versus what it was 30 years ago when you had seven studios and that was it. Uh, right now it is a landscape that is changing minute by minute. Um, uh, truly minute by minute. Like I, I can't keep track of what's going on. I do this for a living. I have agents who are like, oh, that's a, they're buying away. Who are they? That happens to all of us nowadays. It's changing so fast. Would I do television or features? I wouldn't divide it up that way anymore. I, I would, there, there are limited, so six, eight, ten episodes, like Queen's Gambit, which began as a movie. I mean, everything Scott Frank does begins as a movie. Um, uh, Godless began as a movie. Um, and they were expanded into limiteds, and they got, I mean, Scott's as good a writer as we've ever had in this town. Um, the movie was good. I happen to think the long form uh, was even better, both of those. Um, so, that's an example of something that's both. The real difference is the serialization of it. Stranger Things. Like those were all limited series that became an ongoing series in a success. Uh, would they love to do a season two of Queen's Gambit? Yes, of course. Will they know? Um, but find the story and tell it the way the story is best suited. Uh, I think there are buyers out there for all of the above. But really, your job as a, as a beginning writer is to write something that is so undeniably both well-executed and commercial that people say, you got to cancel your lunch and read this. Uh, that happens. And I, I have been that guy. You need that to happen to you. So if you're choosing a project uh, in the medium in which you intend to tell it based upon what you think the market is most excited about, stop. Just tell the story as best you possibly know. If you watch a lot of TV, if you watch a lot of movies, if you watch one in preference of the other, chances are you should lean that direction. But like I said, let the let the story choose for you. Um, is one marketplace better than the other because you asked? I think television is a somewhat healthier market than the feature film industry. Uh, feature films, we are really trying to figure out what the fuck we're doing. Uh, whether Marvel is still on the way up or in decline, whether Netflix has the answer or if they're part of the problem, none of us know, including those companies. Um, so it's, it's a little bit harder. I will tell you, when I broke in, the WGA had probably 4,000 working writers uh, within the guild, and about half of those were feature writers, and about half of them were TV writers. I think there are probably you know, grown-up feature writers who are working consistently today, maybe 300 of us, maybe. And the rest are more on television. There are about 4,000 of those. So that, 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 again, gives you some indication of where the market's headed this week could be different next week entirely. That's, that's great to hear. That's, that's exactly what I was looking for. Cause um, and I love hearing the idea of just like let, letting the story dictate it, whether it becomes a limited series or a movie, or again, just the idea that you can write it as a movie first. And, and if somebody wants to make it as a limited series, awesome, expand it uh, or the other way around. Look guys, you're listening to this program because you want to be writers. 
not because you want to be marketing executives or studio heads. Uh, if you want to listen to programs about those, they're out there. But this is for writers, and your job is to write. Full stop. I love that. Uh, for you as a writer, what comes easy and what's challenging? Everything is challenging. Uh, there are some writers who are effortless. Um, Scott Frank, I mentioned before, would send emails that were infuriating because they were so beautiful. I'd be like, well, I'm not writing today because that's better than anything I'll write. Written. But, but Scott slays over his, his scripts famously. Um, what comes easier to me? Um, there are things that I have a natural facility with. I'm good at soldiers. I'm good at heist movies. Uh, I like I like things that are cleverly assembled, like a heist movie. Um, uh, I've been, I mean, none of them are easy, though. It's, it's, they're all hard in different ways. And if it's not hard at this stage in the process, mortal fucking lot, it'll be hard at that stage in the process. Um, some characters write easy. Some characters have dialogue that jumps off the page. Other characters, it's, it's a, a struggle. I mean, like the strong, silent type, they suck to write. There's a reason why we're all writing quippy Marvel things. It's also because it's more fun to write them, is part of it. It's just, it's, it's hard to write. Strong, silent sucks. Uh, action set pieces, the big ones, uh, those are tough to write. Uh, if you're writing an action set piece that is in several locations, including uh, in often you know, a half dozen characters, like Endgame, which we're watching on TV recently. Um, that's a nightmare to do well. It hats off to the Russo brothers for what they did. Um, and all the writers employed in that one. Uh, I tend to spend a lot of time making a drawing. Uh, he'll be here, she'll be here, and then this happens, and we're going to end up in that place, and then in that place, and then in that place. Uh, that will give me a lot of, of, a, of a literal roadmap to follow. Um, I also do all kinds of tricks of breaking it out. But those, those are ones that tend to be both a very long day to get down my four pages, but also I tend to get lost entirely in the writing uh, of those days. I actually look forward to those days a lot. That's fun. Out of curiosity, what's your take on co-writing versus writing solo? I've done a lot more solo writing than co-writing. Uh, I am co-creating right now with uh, a writer named Brad Falchuk, who is one of the legends of the TV industry. Uh, I've never had a more satisfying professional relationship. Also, he's just a lovely guy to hang out with. Uh, he feeds me, so that, that helps a lot. Um, so that's been fun. I've had less success co-writing than features. Uh, feature writers, we tend to be kind of lone wolves, whereas TV is an inherently collaborative medium, particularly for the writers. They have writer's rooms. Uh, there are movies that are written somewhat that way. I don't think it works that well. Uh, I think t feature writing, and I'm not quite sure of the alchemy that causes that to be the case, but feature writing does seem to benefit more from going off to your, to your little quiet space, writing 110 pages, and then breaking into that with other people, going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But there's something about really getting lost in that story as a writer. Uh, I have written uh, with directors sometimes who want to see the pages as I'm writing them, so I'll shoot them pages at the end of the day. It's never worked as well. It never has. And maybe there are writers for it, but it doesn't work well. It's never worked that well for me. Matthew, where can our listeners find you? Are you on Twitter? Are you on Instagram? Uh, I am on Instagram. I'll post your Instagram at the end of this episode then. With, with pleasure. And dude, this has been such a joy. Thank you so much. It means the world to me that we got to do this. Thank you so much, Matthew. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.
You can find out more about Matthew at Matthew Sand on Instagram. You can find out more about me at Write With Russ. And you can find out more about the show at Screen Playing. We'll see you next week.